Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank Mark and Franco for inviting me to share with you this morning. Um, I always love to share God's word. Um, love to be with God's people in any way I can. I've titled this teaching a sort of a peculiar title, and hopefully by the end of it you'll you'll grasp what it means. But I've titled this From Fellowship to Fear. And we're going to start out in Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to read the conclusion slash summary verses regarding that first day of Pentecost with the first group of Christians who were ever on the earth. And it begins in verse 41. It says, Then those who received his word were baptized, and in that day there were added to their number about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them among all as anyone had need. And day after day, continuing with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were receiving their food with great joy and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And day after the day, the Lord was adding to them those who were being saved. Now, what I'm going to be sharing with you, uh, as often is the case, is a personal challenge to me as well as to those who hear it. Uh, it just seems that I often get these things in my heart to teach and share that, you know, are as much directed at myself as they are at others. Uh, and I do invite questions. Uh, I will try and give you an opportunity at the end uh, of this to, to, uh, ask any questions or to, to offer any comments that you have. Uh, beginning there in verse 41, it begins with that those who received his word were baptized, and the same day they were added to their number about 3,000. The first thing we see is that after these people heard Peter's message and believed, they were baptized. Now, this particular baptism was likely a water baptism, uh, the fullness of the of the, the uh, sacred secret or what some call the mystery had not been revealed. Uh, they certainly were baptized in Holy Spirit, but I don't know that they understood it in that light. So it was very likely a water baptism. But the, the primary point is that even with water baptism, it was it was a symbolic act and it was symbolizing entering into death and being raised to life, just as Christ was. And so they, you know, were immersed under the water, beneath the water, entered into death, and then they emerged with life. Likewise, the baptism of Holy Spirit should also initiate a change in our lives, one from being dominated by an old selfish nature to one that is led by the Spirit. Verse 2 Verse 42, I'm sorry. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and in prayer. So these new believers, once they had gone through this change, this baptism from death to life, from uh, the power of darkness to the power of light, it says, then they devoted themselves. Now, the word devoted 
actually should go with each one of these four items. They devoted themselves to all four of these things. And devoted, uh, for those of you who like the Greek, is a kratos. And kratos means, um, it, it means a dominion or an exerted power. In other words, these people were busy. They were busy. They were exerting energy in the pursuit of this new life they had in Christ. They were exerting themselves toward the discovery of this new life. I like to think of it as that they were living intentionally with intensity. They were getting about the business. And this devotional attitude was put forth, like I said, in these four specific areas. Number one was the apostles' teaching. Now, the apostles' teaching would have only been, at this time, whatever they had learned from the Old Testament and from the life of Jesus Christ. That's all they could have known. Uh, the, the revelation of the mystery, the sacred secret, had not been given. They did not know the fullness of what all had been received. But believe me, there's enough information about the nature of God and about his promises of the Messiah and what that would be uh, throughout the Old Testament and throughout Jesus' ministry to give them plenty to to uh, to think upon and to uh, to devote themselves to. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, the question that I think each of us should be asking is, this apostles' teaching or the doctrine, the learning portion of these four steps, uh, is that where I currently stay? Is that where I stop? You know, my experience, especially with people who've been taught to love the Word of God, is that they give the majority of their time to this one thing, to learning. But that they didn't stop there. Learning was only step one. So uh, do we continue to exert ourselves in these next three areas? So the next one is they, they devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship. Now, the word fellowship is the word, uh, Greek word koinonia, and it essentially means the mutual involvement in one another's lives, mutual involvement. Um, I highly suggest that you take some time and read through the REV commentaries uh, this this discussion about fellowship comes up several times in the commentaries, and it is in, it involves much much more than just believing the same thing or hearing the same thing or knowing the same thing. Those are essential to the level of fellowship you have, but they are not fellowship itself. What we're doing right here now is I'm teaching and you're listening. That's not fellowship. Biblically speaking, that's not fellowship because there's no mutuality taking place. It's only mutual when you have feedback with me and we are in company with one another and there's a full sharing and mutual involvement in each other's lives. It's the state of living where each person's focus is outward and not inward. I'd like you to look at Philippians 2.4, or you can just make a note of it. I'll read it to you. Philippians 2.4 says, Each of you 
should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of each other. Uh, the RVEV commentary is really good on this point, and it reads, the interests, this is the essence of the one thing that's mentioned in Philippians 2.2, that we should all be thinking, and it is in essence a restatement of the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Interests are not hobbies for what someone else wants to do, but what is good for the person in their relationship with God and Christ. To look out for the interest of others is to consider what would bring them closer to Christ. So these new followers of Jesus, they were devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teachings, and to this fellowship, this full sharing of mutual involvement. It was an outward focus, not an inward focus, not an inward devotion. Perhaps a good question to ask ourselves when we understand this is, why do I desire fellowship with other believers? Do I associate and fellowship with other believers to get or to give? You see, Philippians 2, 4, let this mind be in you, that each of you should look out not for his own interests, but for the interests of each other. When I enter into fellowship relationship with other people, my focus should be on fixing or doing or helping, assisting them to grow in the Lord, not what can I get from this. See, too often I have come across Christians, perhaps you have as well, who their primary focus when they think about having or joining in fellowship with other believers is, well, you know, I'm not going to get much out of that. I don't think I'll get anything out of that. Well, maybe you've got the wrong focus. Maybe getting something out of it is not the the purpose of fellowship. Uh, Why do I desire it? Is it to satisfy a personal need or is it to become more aware of the needs of others so that I might find a way to help them? Uh, Consider Hebrews. In, In Hebrews chapter 10, Verses 24 and 25, I'd like to read to you. And let us consider one another to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but exhorting one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The emphasis here is that don't make it a custom of forsaking getting together, but instead come together for the purpose of exhorting one another. You know, the the purpose of getting together is to help one another. It's not, we don't say, oh, I don't want to be in fellowship or go to fellowship or attend fellowship or have a fellowship relationship with someone because I'm really not getting much out of it. I've got the wrong focus, if that's my thinking. Okay, so it says that we should be exhorting one another. And this word spur, it says to spur one another. This word spur could easily be translated spar. Mark will enjoy that. (laughs) Sparring. (laughs) 
because it, it is a deliberate act intended to provoke, to provoke a response. See, the, the scriptures say when we come together, we should be encouraging one another, needling one another, pushing one another, sparring with one another, exhorting one another to do love and good works. Uh, it's a deliberate jab. The only other usage of this word that's recorded is in the book of Acts, and it involves when Paul and Barnabas had come to the point where there was a sharp disagreement uh, over whether or not John Mark should go with them on their next missionary trip. Uh, it was not a casual comment. It was a distinct and purposeful discussion intended to bring about a resolution one way or the other. Now, here's the main thing that I think we should remember when we think about this word fellowship. Fellowship is a state of being, not an event. Okay? Fellowship is a state of being and not an event. It's a state of being in relationship with people to the point where they are the focus in my life and not myself. It's a state of being with them where I am committed to helping other people, not going there to see how they can help me. But that will help and that happens along the way. That's when we're each giving for the benefit of others is when we then grow. We have that mutual involvement, that oneness that brings about the blessing. See, the act of gathering or assembling or coming together, that is a task. That's not fellowship. It may result in fellowship. It may not result in fellowship. Fellowship is born when those who come together give of themselves freely for the benefit of others. When the state of mind of every believer in attendance is how can I help? not what can I learn, then we have opened the door for genuine godly fellowship. Uh, I recently read a book that I want to recommend to you. And uh, it's a book, uh, it was a kind of book that I, I didn't seek out. Someone mentioned this lady to me and I began researching about her. And I discovered this book, and uh, I was fascinated by it. And the book is entitled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Subtitle, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post-Christian World. And it's written by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Now, you can go on YouTube and, and watch a number of her presentations. She speaks... Uh, a lot of different churches these days. Uh, fascinating woman. Uh, the book is the story of her life as a lesbian woman. She was a woman who was a committed lesbian, part of the initial LGBTQRXZUV uh, movement. And the Lord saved her, changed her life. She got converted and devoted herself to serving Jesus Christ. She actually ended up marrying a pastor, and together they've learned how to live out koinonia, fellowship, 
in their lives. Uh, it's a, it's an amazing book that will surely challenge and inspire you. Um, I'd like to read to you just a little bit from the preface of her book. Those who practice radically ordinary hospitality, those who live it, see strangers as neighbors and neighbors as the family of God. They recoil at reducing a person to a category or a label. They choose to see God's image reflected in the eyes of every human being on earth. They take their own sins seriously, including the sin of selfishness and pride. They take God's holiness and goodness seriously. They use the Bible as a lifeline with no exceptions. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but rather as God's gift to use for the furtherance of the gospel. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. They take biblical theology seriously, as well as Christian creeds and confessions and traditions. Radically ordinary hospitality is reflected in Christian homes that resemble those of the first century. Such homes are communal. They're deep and wide in Christian tradition and practice. As Christians, we are a set-apart people, and we do things differently. We don't worry about what the believing neighbors think, because the unbelieving ne- the unbelieving neighbors think, because the unbelieving neighbors are right here sharing at our table, and they are more than happy to tell us what they think. And she goes through this book and describes incident upon incident of the people that she and her husband have been able to impact through the years by taking this position that their home and their lives are a gift to their community and by their open arm invitation to bring people into their home. And, you know, it's a wonderful read. It really is. Uh, but it requires a deliberate choice on our part to be Christ's representatives. Consider how Jesus went about his daily life. He was always on point. He was never on stage. He was always there for the moment, and he was always willing to give. As ambassadors, we have to do the same. Jesus understood his plan, his role, and God's plan, we should do likewise. Being an ambassador of Christ is more than a catchy cliche. It's a literal position of authority and supply for our world. As ambassadors for Christ, we stand against evil while simultaneously holding out a hand of kindness to those in need. The next thing that's listed with regard to the, what these believers did was they daily devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They daily devoted themselves to fellowship. They daily devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And it means exactly what it says, breaking of bread, mealtimes. 
Meal times are generally the most relaxed and comforting event of our daily lives. It's the time where we refresh our bodies and enjoy the tastes and smells of good food while our stomachs get filled. Warm bowl of chili on a cold day, a fresh crisp salad on a hot summer day, we can all think of how a perfect meal shared with others can be so comforting to our soul. Sharing meals was a regular practice in the lives of these new believers. And I sure would have loved to have been, and maybe you've been around, meals like that, where it's just believers getting together and enjoying one another's company. Well, that's the kind of environment and atmosphere that we can bring others into. We don't have to have a, a meeting. There doesn't have to be a teaching you know, it's a it's a fellowship where we're giving our lives, we're looking out for others. It could be the neighbor next door that hates your guts. But you can say, hey, brother, why don't you come over and enjoy a hot dog with us this afternoon? I'm going to throw some dogs on the grill. Would love to have you come over and just sit down and enjoy life with us. There's something wonderful about sharing meals with other people. The next thing that it says that they went through is that after they had devoted themselves to apostles' doctrine, to fellowship, to the breaking of breads, was to prayer. And I think it's, it's to me, it's the most obvious thing anyone who's truly converted will ever do. It's the most basic thing. No one who has ever actually encountered the Lord has to be told to pray. It comes natural. It's the natural thing to do. Because once you experience, once you know that, hey, there's a God in heaven. He's real. (laughs) And there's this guy, Jesus, and he is real. And he's raised from the dead. You know, prayer becomes like breathing. It becomes just such a part of our lives that we are constantly, continuously doing it. You know, I have specific times when I will sit and pray, and I will have specific things, just like we pray today about specific needs. But more than anything else, I pray continuously. I'm constantly, in my heart, in communication with the Lord. I'm talking to the Lord. What about this? Lord, help me over here. Lord, that looks strange. What does that mean? You know, I'm constantly in connection with him. The uniqueness here is precisely the point. They were devoting themselves to prayer, seeking God, apart from and sometimes in conflict with their own upraising. These were Jews. The Jews had hours of prayer. They had times when they went to the temple to pray. But these believers were learning something different. They were learning to pray continually, to live a life of prayer, to walk in prayer. They were devoted to prayer. And remember that word devoted, when we go all the way back, that word devoted is very key there. It is it is exercised authority. They took authority of their lives and said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to devote myself. I'm going to commit myself along these four lines. And then it says, verse 43, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostle. 
Now, the fear, we should understand, It's even though it's the Greek word phobos, which simply means fear, we need to understand that in light of and in the context of how it's used in Scripture with regard to God. Fear is the healthy or needful respect. I like to think of it as fire. You know, fire can be both a warming and it can be dangerous. It's all in how I approach it. You see, I have to have a healthy respect for fire if I'm going to use it for my benefit. If I'm careless and lazy and haphazard in dealing with fire, I'll burn something down, possibly even my own home. Likewise, in dealing with the things of God and dealing with God, we need to have a healthy respect, a fear of the Lord. The scriptures say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, of really learning how to live life. Begins with that. Uh, another picture that I like to use is that of walking along the edge of a cliff. You know, if you've ever been up on a high place along a steep slope cliff, uh, you know, you're walking along, you can see beautiful scenery, whether it's the ocean or whether it's the countryside. It can be gorgeous view. But at the same time, careless behavior can kill you, right? Careless behavior, you end up at the bottom of the cliff. That's the fear of the Lord. We enjoy the beauty of being in that relationship, but we also recognize that this is serious business. The amazing thing here is that the result of their actions wasn't what I would normally expect from attending church. I expect things like mental stimulation, emotional satisfaction, contentment of heart and peace. But here, the result of their fellowship was fear. That's amazing. They did all these things, and then it says, and fear came. The result came. The result of their actions, their diligent effort was learning the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread, prayers, the result. Those were all their actions. And then look what came. What came into their lives was a healthy fear of the Lord, fearful respect of the Lord. Let that sink in for a moment. Does that ever even cross your mind? You know, that, that I'm doing all these things and then as a result, what comes to me is this, this godly fear. See, too often, especially for those of us in the West, we have learned to seek comfort, comfort above all else. Think about it. Our personal comfort is most often the primary ambition of our lives. We work our entire lives, save all of our money in order to retire and live comfortably. Really? Is that the aim of the Christian life, to retire in comfort? We rarely consider the judgment that awaits us all when we stand before Christ. Our duty to make known Jesus and to offer his salvation to the lost is very serious business. Therefore, we should have great fear 
of becoming a lazy and slothful servant. The ministry of Jesus portrayed this very, very clearly. You see both sides of Jesus' ministry. When you read the Gospels, you see him. He comforted the miserable, but he made the comfortable miserable. (laughs) That's what prophets do. He comforted the miserable, those who were hurting, those who were lost, those who were despised and rejected. He brought them great comfort. He gave of himself to bring them great comfort. But, you know, to the comfortable, the smug, the arrogant, the religious, he made them very uncomfortable. (laughs) He did not offer them comfort. He made them uncomfortable because he challenged them. And then it says, the wonderful thing is it begins here, the next The next verse says, or the rest of that verse says, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. See, I think these things that we've read are like building blocks. They've built one upon the other, upon the other, upon the other. And the signs of wonders were all a result of the fear, the reverence that existed among those believers. And that was a result of the four steps that they had devoted themselves to. The four things they had devoted themselves to brought about the fear. The fear brought about the signs and wonders from the apostles. Now, it's most interesting uh, is that uh, wonders and signs, that, that phrase always appears together in the scriptures. Uh, in, at least in the New Testament, it was the Greek words. I didn't look for anything in Hebrew, but they always come together. Uh, and there's a lot of discussion about what are signs and wonders and signs and, you know, signs and wonders. What do they mean and when do they come and so on? Uh, the kind of the way that I have settled in my own head to understand it is a wonder is just something that makes you go, wow, what's that? Hmm. That's interesting. Huh. Wonder. It, it causes wonder or marvel. You know, wow. What is that? Whereas a sign is a, is a, is a clearly exposed thing. It's kind of like, I kind of think of it like this, like uh, if you've ever watched a magic act and you see a magician doing a, a magic act and you go, wow, you know, that's the wonder. But then he says, well, this is how I did it. And then he shows you how he did it. Now there's the clarity of it. There's the sign. This shows you, yeah, this is for real. This is how it happened. Okay. So, you know, the most interesting thing about this is that although I have, had been taught, and perhaps you have as well, that signs and wonders are just happening all the time, and and they can happen with anybody at any time and any believer. I don't see that in Scripture. You know, maybe that's true, but someone would have to teach me that clearly from Scripture, because when I read Scripture, there's only certain people that are ever credited with performing signs and wonders, and that's Moses, uh, the apostles, you know, Jesus' apostles, uh, Philip, um and uh Stephen. Uh outside of them, you know, the men that traveled with Paul, when Paul said we were doing this and God confirmed it with, with wonders and signs following. But I read nowhere in scripture where it tells us as believers to go out and perform signs and wonders. I think those are things that God gives at his prerogative, not something that we can operate. Okay? So Those are interesting facts for further study later on that someone may want to look at, but that's not what the purpose of this fellowship was or this teaching. So uh, 
the rest of these verses here in Acts 2 that I read earlier are also uh, very enlightening and things that I would like to cover, but maybe at a later date. But for now, I want to just review briefly and then open it up for comments. The order of events that we see listed in the verse that happened before the signs and wonders came were they devoted themselves to learning the gospel. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They devoted themselves to breaking bread. They devoted themselves to prayer. And the aim, the goal, the result was that godly fear came upon them and came to rest in their lives. When I'm living in godly fear, then I understand my role and I have a great awareness and clarity of what I'm to be doing with my life. My job is to be diligently devoted to the things just like they're listed here. Then have my focus, make my awareness toward others and not toward myself. So this is the first half of that summary section there in Acts chapter 2. Fellowship may or may not involve teaching. Fellowship may or may not involve praying together. Fellowship is a state of being. It's a state of being where I'm in such a relationship with the other person that there's mutual trust. There's mutual love and concern where there's a sharing. The word koine, from which koinonia comes, means common. The Greek language that the Bible's written in is called koine Greek. It means the common Greek, that which is common to everybody. So, Yes, you can have fellowship. Now, you can't have the depth of fellowship with people who don't know the Scriptures like you know the Scriptures. Certainly you can't. But we see Jesus, uh, you know, having dinner with all sorts of people. I mean, he went to all kinds of people's homes, you know, tax collectors, prostitutes. I mean, he had supper with all. In fact, that's one of the reasons they criticized him. Was, was they, they went to his disciples and said, don't you see your masters having dinner with prostitutes and, and, and tax collectors? So yes, you can have fellowship with them. It's just the level of fellowship, the degree right. or the depth of intimacy that you can have is going to be limited according to their understanding. You know, the Lord never said that our role as ambassadors would be easy. It's going to require work. It's going to require us doing exactly what you're talking about and thinking and considering and meditating and driving ourselves to figure out the whys and the wherefores of how to carry out that ministry of being an ambassador for Christ. And, you know, there's, there's all, all different kinds of, of people and churches and groups, uh, you know, that, and believe it or not, a lot of them are hungry for the truth. I will be the, the August newsletter, the August Fruit of Divine. Uh, I encourage all of you to read that when it comes out because I, I believe, you know, the Lord directed me to write it, this specific one with this specific message, but I, I think it, you should give it some thought. But too often, you know, I, I'm, I'll just say it. I, you know, I came out of a background where it was very elitist when it came to biblical knowledge. You know, we have more <laughs> knowledge than anybody else. And yeah. so therefore, 
Everyone else was just simply, if they weren't unbelievers, they were slightly better than unbelievers. I mean, let's face it, they're just, <laughs> you know, that's kind yeah. of the ground I came out of. And uh, God has had to deal with me on that. You know, there's a lot of people out there who have a true hunger to know the Lord Jesus Christ and to understand the Bible. They just haven't been taught. And you know what? I'm their neighbor. <laughs> so it's <Yeah>. my excuse. <laughs> Amen. In that book uh, that I mentioned, she, she tells the story of a neighbor that lives straight across the street from her that it took years of doing exactly what you're saying, Franco, of them reaching out to him, giving to him, helping him, blessing him. It took years, and he finally came to Christ because he'd never seen Christians like that before. All he'd ever seen was people saying, come to church, come to church. Come to our meeting. Come to our meeting. Read our tract. You know, he'd never seen them live it out the way these people did. It's a fascinating book. Well, I thank you all for having me, and I've enjoyed it immensely. (laughs) 